In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. The sun is alive. And it loves two scoops of raisins. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. At Paratopia, everything is conscious. Except Jeff Ritzman this week. Anything goes at Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Paratopia, oh, please welcome our very special guest, Gregory Sams, author of Son of God. Uh, I did the, the Rudy Shield episode where I talked about my I Am Awakening and, and taking on the identity of a star. Uh, and then pretty much the next day or the day after, I, I went into a bookstore and saw Son of God. Uh, the sun is smarter than we think. And I thought, wow, that's a nice little synchronicity. Um so, Gregory, thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show. Hi, Jeremy. I, lo- I love seeing, I love that synchronicity you mentioned. Yeah, and thank you. Um, I mean, I, I wrote you this sort of long, rambling email uh, explaining my experience, and you actually listened to the episode. Uh, so, thank you for that yeah, and for not ra- being scared away. <laughs> it wasn't rambling at all. It made perfect sense to me. Excellent. Uh, well, before we get into the book, uh, you know, I, I've read the book and I think it's great. And I want to thank you for writing it, which is something I don't normally do because it actually um, sort of has inspired me to a new level of sensitivity, I guess, about things, um, <laughs> literally things. But I, I think that it, it's hard to separate a book like this from its author. So could you give us some background on who you are and how you came to write this book? Um, who am I? I'm, uh, I've been trying to figure that out all my life, Jeremy, <laughs> and I'm enjoying the process. Um, let's see, I, I was part of the, the hippie revolution in the 60s, and um, I was in Berkeley, California, um, and I sort of tuned in and turned on, and uh, my dropping out wasn't intentional. I dropped out of a tree um, <laughs> before I could even finish my first year, my first freshman year in college. I injured my back badly, um, ended up in a wheelchair, came back to England, kicked off the natural food organic thing over here. I'd been into that a little bit beforehand. I got turned on to macrobiotics, which was the only natural food diet at that time. Um, so with my brother, we sort of set up the first restaurant, first natural food store, first natural food wholesaler, and as it got bigger and bigger, it got more and more boring, so I kind of did something different by launching the first ever veggie burger, which I christened veggie burger. The word had not been used before then, um, and that did really well. I sold it, enabled me to retire for a couple of years. I got into chaos theory, opened a shop devoted to chaos theory. Um, that led me to write a book because chaos theory has some incredibly valuable uh, instructions or lessons on how we 
should be letting our society organize itself rather than expect other people to decide what's best for us in terms of how long you can work in a week or you know what constitutes a legal house and all these kind of other things um, so that book was called Uncommon Sense, The State is Out of Date. And um, after a few, I mean, that was fun. That was the first time I'd ever written a book. Mm-hmm. Everything else used to have to be, have to fit on the side of a cereal packet or a recipe leaflet or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, after a few years, actually in 2000, the first sunrise of 2000, I realized what the subject of my next book would be, which is the one you read. And that would be the sun, because way back when I was 18 in Berkeley, I'd had an experience on the top of Strawberry Canyon um, where I recognized that there was somebody or some consciousness in residence in the sun. And I'd never really explored the idea. It was just always one of those things that I knew in the same way that I knew eating really good healthy foods made me feel happier and healthier myself. Mm-hmm. And so it was about uh, 40 years later, I guess, that I started to write a book about the sun. And then when I started to study it and study solar science and look at some of the history of it, I was completely blown away because it, it was the implications were phenomenal and the actual fact of the matter of the sun being a conscious being, which people think is completely crazy, primitive, ignorant stuff, was so obvious that what amazes me now is that people have forgotten it, that we don't realize something so obvious. Well, how do you um, separate uh, anthropomorphizing everything from saying that it's conscious? Well, I think anthropomorphizing as a word to use here is kind of based on the assumption that only human beings have consciousness. So if you think anything else has consciousness, you're extending human qualities to it. Whereas the sun doesn't have to be in any way like a human being in order to experience consciousness any more than a termite or a tree might be. Mm -hmm. And um, we've had this scientific headset for some time now which says only human beings are conscious or aware of their own existence and everything else from dogs to monkeys to mice to worms to butterflies has no idea that it exists as a being it's just following pre-programmed patterns designed to help it survive but anybody who has a dog will realize that it spends much of its life sniffing around to see if there are other consciousnesses like it around and, and it is very well aware of its own existence but that hasn't been the scientific headset ever since Descartes and possibly before. Yeah, in fact you had a uh, pretty horrifying footnote in there about Descartes which I didn't know that he nailed his dog to his door to prove that its yelping was mechanical. So we are told, so we are told. I mean he, he was that convinced that that was the case. Um, that nothing else experienced pain or its existence. Yeah, it's quite a horrifying story, but it just shows you, you know, how how much our headsets can change. From, or, you know, they used to burn witches. You know, somebody would dance naked under the moon, and they would be burned for it. That's pretty horrifying too. Mm-hmm. But that was done for their own good. Right. Uh, so. 
tell me a little bit about how you structured the book in terms of why one thing comes after another um, thematically. Well, the book was a, uh, a lot of it was a voyage of discovery for me. With my previous book, 80% of it was in my head, and 20% of it arose in the course of writing the book. With Son of God, it was actually the other way around. I kind of knew that the Son was a conscious being, but I had no idea where that awareness would take me um, as I wrote the book. So, so writing about the sun obviously made me realize that other stars, too, shared this, this quality. And then I found out, and I'm looking at studying galaxies, that um, within galaxies, stars live in groupings. They're not just scattered randomly. They live within groups, which was quite interesting. And then I found out that um, they're all moving around, and those stars have a partner. Um, they're binary systems, and they spin around each other like a couple of pair skaters mm-hmm. um, as they travel around through the galaxy. And that if they, if all the stars weren't moving in a galaxy, if they were just kind of dead, motionless balls of gas, they would all eventually coalesce into one huge lump as gravity pulled them towards each other. And... Um, and it all kind of supports the theme. And then I found out that galaxies have their own unique pulse. So there's all these electromagnetic emissions from the hundreds of billions of stars in a galaxy. But the galaxy turns that into its own radio signal, which it sends out. And then I found that the galaxies live in groups. They're not just scattered about. They live in clusters. Um, just everything sort of added up. Um, then when I looked at how, well, I considered how does a star form? How does dust in space create a star? And then I had to sort of get into smaller things like you know, quantum mechanics. And and I found out that, you know, quantum mechanics or quantum physics was finding out that the subatomic particles seemed to have free will. And there's this two professors from Princeton who have the free will theorem, which asserts, well, their belief is that subatomic particles have free will. Now, mm-hmm. if they don't, human beings don't. Um, so that added up. And I had to do a chapter on religion. Now, I'd never had much religious upbringing myself, which actually is one of the qualifications for being able to write this book with a clear head. Mm-hmm. But I needed to study religions because it was quite obvious that they had taken on a lot of the previous ideas about sun worship. Um, Zoroastrianism did not worship the sun alone, they worshiped light. And light was a supreme force to them, of which our sun was the local representative. And of course, it's no coincidence that the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have a god of light. But he's invisible. He's somewhere out there. We don't know where he is, and we don't see his light, but it sort of travels invisibly. And it's, you know, meanwhile, hey, we've got something we can see, we can prove, we do know is out there, which is dispensing the light that gives us the power to live. Did you ever find out, um, since they based their religions on Zoroastrism, why they abandoned the sun and just said, eh, some invisible god? Well, I wrote a book 
I'm not sure. I read a book called uh, Not in His Image by James Lash Lamb, which kind of showed how Christianity developed out of a fairly extreme Jewish Jewish sect. And I think, as with all religions, you have to take on board certain certain truths that are fairly universal, one of which is that light is the stuff of life and intelligence, and, um, and you have to work those into your religion. And in the Abrahamic religions, they were sort of profit-driven, and I don't know quite how the sun got so excluded because you, know, you have all, you have lots of sun imagery within Christianity. When you have images of God, there's usually a sun rays coming out from behind a cloud. Very many images of Jesus have a sun disc blowing behind his head. So it's it's in there. Um, but it's kind of ignored at the same time. But they have it in there because it's an important part of of our lives. What do you think about this? I just thought of this now. I'll throw it out there. Pretty much the decimation of the world, if, if you wanted to draw it back to, um, or the ecosystem, I should say, draw it back to uh, in the Bible where, where it says we have dominion over the land and the animals. You can't have dominion over the animals and the land if, if there's a sun that has dominion over you. So they had to get rid of the other natural object that would uh, trump us. Well, I guess so, yeah. Because if the whole universe, according to Genesis, was created with one sole purpose, which is to house human beings, then the sun was created as something to give us warmth, and the moon was created as something to help us measure the seasons and know when to plant things and... And it's part of this, I think, kind of insane proposition that we are the be-all and end-all of the universe, whereas, as we know, we've been here, you know, snap of a fingers. Right. If the, if the universe was 100 years old, we've been here like 15 seconds. I forget what the figure is, but it's not long. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, going along with that, the sun is subservient to us, and we are we are supreme, but I think... I think we are, as a race, becoming a little bit more humble now about our place in the universe. Well, that seems to be actually more the thrust of the book than saying that the sun is conscious, is that um, it seems like what you're really doing battle against is the arrogance uh, that we in the West have accumulated throughout the years. Because it really, the sun is just sort of the the jumping off point to uh, say, look, everything has some sort of intelligence to it. Yeah. And I think when you start thinking that way, it makes you more sensitive. And then I got to thinking about, okay, what is sensitivity? It's aliveness. So it makes you more alive to actually be appreciative uh, and respectful of things on their own terms instead of trying to dominate them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's that kind of common respect and empathy with things around us that makes the world work. And people used to have that as part of their being. They used to sort of see the whole world as something that they shared existence with. So they would respect trees, respect mountains, respect the sun. And it was a much more, I believe, harmonious way to be. Um, And today, I think the reason that I kind of titled the book Son of God, and I started with with that um, premise, 
is that it's the it's the big missing piece in our jigsaw puzzle. We've now got you know, James Lovelock has convinced many people that the Earth itself is a living organism, and we have people talking about the conscious universe, and we have quantum physicists talking about subatomic particles having free will, and yet the most important character, bar none, in our existence is the sun. We wouldn't be here without it. Um, we wouldn't have any, the energy of life is provided by it. Nothing is more important to us, and yet we're completely ignorant of its character and nature. And once that piece fits into the jigsaw puzzle, all those other little bits make sense and give us a much sort of fuller picture of a living universe of which we are a part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can be honored and, you know, proud to be a part of this incredible structure and to have this consciousness that you know, can expand at times to to embrace that universe. Mm -hmm. And it seems the, the sort of thread that you made uh, between the sun and, well, everything really, but the earth life is that um, that light contains information. So it, it sends its information here and creates us that we are essentially beings of light. Is that, did I interpret that correctly? I would, yes, we're beings of light or we're, we're energy manifesting in a physical being um, and it ties in you know, quite neatly with, with Einstein's you know, energy and matter equivalents in E equals MC squared. And there is that, that equivalence between the two states. And if you take the energy out of us, we're not alive anymore. I mean, it's the energy of life, which is an actual electromagnetic phenomenon, that makes you know us have this conversation here and it allows me to move my arm up and down in the air that's energy it happens to be powered by the sun um but it is pure energy and it's energy that gives a tree life and even when you look at a rock the energy equivalence that is in that rock is equal to quite a few atom bombs mm -hmm. if you were to actually directly convert it so you know, you could almost see matter as being energy exploring you know, different modes of existence. You know, it also got me to thinking about instinct differently, too, because, I, you know, when you, you say that about Descartes, um, and, and any of the examples that you have in there of um, animal communication and working um, within some sort of free will, then I, I get to thinking if aliens came here and saw everything that we're doing, but just decided that our when when we talk we're just barking or babbling or chirping mm -hmm. and not actually saying anything, then we would look as though everything we're doing is running on instinct. True. That, that's that's true. <laughs> I mean, is that essentially what we're doing? We're just saying, oh, they're just making noise. I mean, that's essentially the argument of the book, isn't it? That the universe, uh, oh, it's just making noise. It's just radiating. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Quick time out for a moment of clarity as I edit this. Uh, I realize I didn't quite make the point. What I meant to say was the argument of the book is the exact opposite of what I just said. All right, time back in. No, I would say the universe, I, mean, I, I wouldn't presume to um, know what the purpose of the universe is, but I would, uh, I would be quite sure that there, there is a purpose to it. But it would be kind of like, you know, one of the 
beneficial bacteria in our gut trying to figure out, you know, what I'm doing in life. Am I a whole food merchant or a book writer or, you know, it's, it's a little bit beyond it to recognize that. And, um, you know, but consciousness and intelligence do things. And, um, you know, we're a part of whatever the universe is doing, but I, I wouldn't presume to, to guess, but it's, it's not just, you know, meaningless stuff. Right. I just think of, um, I, at one point I was thinking of uh, whales going to mate or birds migrating or any of that stuff that we sort of, as observers, we go, oh, that's what they're doing because they have to. Um, but is that any different than us taking vacations um, when the, you know, the weather gets to be something we don't like? I mean, how much, how much do you think of the discrepancy between what we observe and, and how things actually are is uh, the, the fact of observation that, that, that we set ourselves up as the judger of what's going on and, that, and so that that gets in the way of, of what's actually happening. And, that, and I guess in a sense that you can't – it's the old um, sociological problem of you, you can't fully know someone or something unless you are that thing or that person. You think that that's – I guess not acting out of that or not, or not having that in the back of your mind is sort of – one of the problems of, of science in its arrogance? Yeah, you can't, you can't fully know another person if you're not that other person. And, and the same applies to other, other forms of being as well. But there is a scientific arrogance, if you like, and that is drummed into us that we are the only self-conscious being on the planet. And you now have scientists arguing that orangutans and dolphins and certain other specific animals enjoy consciousness, and they set up little tests to find out that are always kind of human-oriented tests. And yet, I don't think that's the natural headset or the intuitive headset, because you, if you go back to pre-Christianity or you go to more remote tribes or other other religions, even Hinduism and Shintoism, they don't have that exclusivity. They they recognize the beingness in other types of entities other than humans and they just take that take that for granted and they'd be very surprised to to find how divorced Westerners are mm -hmm. from the world around them. And it's a fairly recent thing. I mean, we've only been exercising this we're the only ones, everything was made for us headset for the last 1,500 years or so. Yeah, and and, we, and at the same time, we have to remember that we're still coming out of that. Um, I mean, not too long ago, we had slaves. Not too long ago, we didn't have civil rights. Not too long, you know. Yeah. In America, at least, we have gay marriage as a problem. You know, there's always mm -hmm. something that we're trying to suppress or oppress, but, you know, it is getting better, but that mindset is still the thing that we're climbing out of. Yeah, but I wonder, always, did we need yeah. to have that mindset in the first place? I mean, could you use science as a, a language uh, in this book had there not been hardline materialists uh, forging ahead in that sort of blinders-on way? Well, I, I like science, and I like scientists. Um, and I'm extremely grateful for for what they've enabled us to achieve. And one of the objects of my book is to get scientists to open their head up to spirit and spirituality, because that used to be part and parcel of science. There was no rule 
that said scientists couldn't study that stuff. And you had scientists who were into astrology and healing and alchemy and, and various various other areas. And it was um, it was the sort of Middle Ages when the Church said, hey, no, this is stuff is our territory. You stick the nuts and bolts, and we'll handle spirit. And if you get involved in spirit, we'll you know, do something very unpleasant to you to make sure you don't do it. And um, I mean, Giordano Bruno, a great scientist and philosopher of his time, um, who saw further than Copernicus or Galileo, was burned at the stake by the by the church for thinking this way. And scientists now, when they poo-poo anything spiritual and just say this is all rubbish, they're actually holding on to a taboo that the church put upon them in the first place. And they'll scorn the church, but they still won't tread in its territory. And I'd much rather have a scientist telling me about this thing than some guy wearing a pointy hat and a violet robe <laughs> as his main credentials. Right. Uh, here's something to throw out just as... Um something that threw me for a loop was seeing this uh, in a bookstore that there was this pendulum set up um, over some sand. And so you swing it back and forth and it creates ovals and it creates rectangles and squares and lines and all sorts of things. And you look at it and if you were to just put it up on a wall, you'd be, think maybe you were looking at Mesoamerican artwork. Um, mm -hmm. So that to me implies that there is some sort of, um, logic or pattern that just gets created out of gravity. And so if that's true, then do you need um, for the universe to be alive, for there to be, or conscious, for there to be order, for instance? Um, I think, yes, you do. Um, you need that consciousness to, um, to create, well, to have something as, as intricate as our, as our solar system or as a rainforest. Um, and you've got a rainforest that holds together incredibly well, and it's and it's the rain, and it's where the frogs are, and it's where the trees grow, and it's how the rivers flow, and all of these different factors. And this is what chaos theory is about. It's why I opened a shop devoted to chaos theory because it shows how things self-organize, whether it's a weather system or a rainforest, and they and they do so, and it's this sort of bottom-up, bottom-up consciousness and if indeed atoms themselves are exhibiting free will it makes a lot of sense because you've got everything i mean within a single cell in our body there are several million components in one cell of our body with which you could fit 10,000 on a pinhead now, all those components are going about and they're doing things they're sending signals, they're receiving signals, they're repairing damaged bits, they're excreting waste, they're absorbing food and digesting it, and it's it's this whole activity going on there. Um, and to imagine that that's just accidental things bumbling around without any consciousness involved is um, sort of arrogant, unappreciative, or whatever, whatever you like. It's not really the same as a pendulum swinging and making a pattern. Hmm. It's an awful lot going on in a cell. Although the, the pendulum swinging and making a pattern, I mean, that it, it's making, I guess what I'm trying to say, I mean, it is making geometrical shapes. It's making perfect squares and art, you know. It, uh, so there is something 
uh, about that that uh, could you could you not argue the opposite with that? Well, yeah, you have. I mean, I've I've had arguments, an argument with um, scientists who maintain that human beings have no no free will, and that everything that we do and say and think arises as a result of the arrangement of particles immediately after the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And they're they're very adamant about that. So I can go bigly bogly boogly bog. And that's not me doing that, to, to underline my argument. That all came about because of the way of the arrangement of particles at the Big Bang. And, uh, and, and they really maintain that we do not have any free will whatsoever. And I think one of the reasons they, they hold to that argument, because if, if we do have free will, and they then extend that argument, the implications are they probably then have to start realizing other things have free will as well. And it all becomes you know, very messy for their scientific thing, you know, the way that they are working. I'm not saying all scientists believe that, but quite a few do. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I actually firmly believe we do have free will and that all those um, you know, neurons in our brain conspire to, to create our consciousness and our, and our being, our individuality. Mm-hmm. And that that's something that we have a fair degree of management of. Obviously, a lot of it is automatic. We're not managing our digestion and our circulation, things like that. But um, you know, we do have, we do, I believe, manage our thoughts to a large degree. Well, you do throw out uh, at the end of the book uh, the suggestion that perhaps the universe is, is building to what a giant mega consciousness from the ground up. But the universe yeah. itself will become fully alive uh, as an entity unto itself? Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Um, in the same way that, that we are alive. I mean, we have, we have these sort of 100 billion plus neurons in our brain that contribute to our being alive. When you look at a galaxy, it's got 100 billion more or less um, stars within it contributing it to its, its oneness its uniqueness as a galaxy, and then you've got a universe that's got, you know, countless hundreds of billions of galaxies within it, all all sending sort of electromagnetic signals out, all connected in some strange way. Mm-hmm. And um, to not see the... I mean, so many people today thank the universe and trust in the universe for things. Um, and you have this um, very popular book, some people think it's a bit shallow, called The Secret, which is all about talking to the universe and trusting in the universe, but it never actually talks about the universe or gets into it or explains why it might be responsive to other forms of consciousness within it. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> no, <I'm just> why? <laughs> well, are you a, are you a proponent of the secret? Um, I think it's a bit it's a bit shallow. You know, just imagine you want something and it's going to happen, and right. I think. You know, the evidence for that is all the guys who, you know, spend a lot of their time looking at uh, pornographic magazines or videos and imagining they're the guy you know, bonking <laughs> the girl in there. And, and, and suddenly the girls then start knocking on their door saying, here I am, the universe delivers. <laughs> so what has the, well, if there has been a scientific response or uh, scientist friends of yours response to this book? I've had I've had quite a few people who started off reading the book 
thinking, I'm gonna this this is this is crap, you know, what on earth is this guy about? And by the time they'd finished it, they were curiously convinced that I that I had something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's even a sort of rabbi who reviewed it on Amazon who actually um, was one round to my way of thinking, even though he didn't like the things I had to say about religion in my one chapter on religion, which really sort of got up his nose. But he did um, he did see the sense of solar consciousness in it, and but then he claimed that Jews knew knew that all along. Right. Well, so, I, yeah, yeah. I do enjoy how you. Um, I mean, I thought you brilliantly at the beginning put out sort of a not really a disclaimer so much as just a look. This is the way this book is. Uh, take what you will from it. Discard what you don't want from what doesn't work for you. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think you've got to. You've got to understand and believe for yourself um, whatever you're being taught. And, and just because somebody has letters after their name or, you know, or is very enthusiastic about something, it doesn't mean that they're right. You've got to kind of take this in. If it fits, if it makes sense with your experience of life, go with it. But that's, that's science. You know, if, if something is, you know, one disproof is all it takes to, to destroy a theory. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, what I've said holds together very well. But I don't expect people to take everything on board absolutely as it's as it's written, but um, you know, quite a few people have. You talk in there also about the your own struggle in writing this and trying to categorize things as, you know, animate, inanimate. And somewhere along the way you talk about David Bohm's experiment with plasma uh, becoming a sort of self-organizing inanimate phenomenon, I believe you called it. That's right, yeah, there's electron soup he created. So where would you place plasma? What, what do, you, do you think it's a life form the way he did, or do you think that it, it is not? And why, why are we still... The one thing I, I just was asking in, in my head is, why are we still relying on one man's experiments 60 years ago? Have there not been other experiments? You know, I don't actually know how many experiments they've been. I've got a plasma ball on my desk right now. And it's on, I put my fingers on it, and that sort of wire has come to them. Um, but it's not a natural state on this planet, even though 99% of the universe is plasma. I mean, it's a state of matter, like liquid, solid, gas, and plasma. But uh, the only natural plasma we have on this planet is, is lightning. Um, so it's not something we're really terrifically familiar with, or that's easy to recreate, but it's... It's a form of matter in which electromagnetic currents and energy just absolutely flow very freely throughout it. So that's um, it gives it a whole different nature, and it's not it's not solid, it's not fixed, it's more fluid, and it's got this electric currents running through it constantly. Now you know that's. That's, again, the stuff of life is electromagnetic energy, which light is a form of, and um, bioelectric energy in our bodies is. And if you're looking at energy as being some sort of a, a conduit of life, which it is wherever we experience life, then you know, something that is a plasma form is going to be much more conducive to consciousness. Hmm. So when the electrons are sort of stirred, stirred up and they um, start to do something that looks intelligent, where are they drawing from 
for that intelligence? Do you have any idea? Um, no, no more ideas than I than I can am able to understand how a million termites can create this incredibly precise structure that maintains a constant temperature and has the right number of openings and places for baby termites to grow because there's no sort of termite queen directing it all um, or ant king and ant hive and how does that happen? We really we don't know um, how that cumulative intelligence of a million termites can create such a thing any more than we can understand how a bunch of water molecules floating in a cloud can create a shape and create generate electricity and lightning and, and um, formations of clouds and wind patterns and all the things that come together to create a, uh, a regular weather system. That, that's what chaos theory studies as a science, and they, they see it happening, but they still don't know how or why mm-hmm. these these things any more than they any more than we know how our own brain works mm-hmm. we've got 100 billion neurons in there doing their own thing and we find out little bits of the of the brain might light up when we're hungry or when we're frightened and but they still don't really have any idea how all these neurons each one is connected to a few thousand other neurons through these synapses that aren't even physical connections. The, the, the electricity has to jump across them, and it's um, it, it's it's not a miracle because it's happening, but we have we have no understanding of actually how those neurons assemble into a conscious state any more than we know how the termites do it or anything else. Hmm. Uh, and you also talked about uh, from our point of view. Gosh, I can't. Can't believe I remember this off the top of my head, but from from our point of view, it takes what eight minutes for light to uh, reach the Earth, and from Sun's That's point right. of view, it's instantaneous. That's right. Um, light is, doesn't experience time, and we're often familiar with the scientific, the science fiction concept that when we travel faster than the speed of light, we would go backwards in time, um, and we're of course very familiar with going slower than the speed of light as we do and you travel forwards in time we get older but light travels at its own at the speed of light and as such it's everywhere at once as far as it's concerned and any scientist will absolutely verify this for you um, so from the energy's point of view time doesn't exist it, it, it reaches earth it's at the sun it bounces off of Earth, it goes off into space, and it's, it's living everything in one moment. And it's very hard for us to get our heads around something like that because we experience time and we age. But the photon that left you know, a star 10 light years away from us hasn't lost any energy when it reaches the back of our eyeball. It's the same photon, the same energy charge, that left that star 10 years ago. And the only kind of in a human comparable example I can come up with is many people who've come back from a near-death experience. And, and there's this common, common phenomenon where their entire life flashed before them in, a moment, in an instant. 
Mm-hmm. You know, in an instant, their whole life flashes before them. Well, they're a being of light when they're experiencing that life flashing behind, but before them, they left the physical world, they've become a, an energy being, so they're outside of that time, and that's that's why it can can happen in an instant. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, when, when I had that experience uh, and became the sun or whatever, a star, mm-hmm. it, so they, they absolutely are aware of all the other stars around, and so this sort of put a little physics to that for me, which is, you know, how mm-hmm. is that possible? Well, it's possible uh, because their light has already penetrated the universe instantaneously from yeah. their point of view, so there's no need to see with an eyeball. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's just that knowing. There's just that um, sort of shared consciousness through light, through their their own selves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I found that interesting. Do you think that this is going to be... Um, a new direction that science goes in um, where instead of purely doing things to, to prove whether they work or not, that, that they might take their own experiences, their own sort of practical experiences and try to prove them out in, in the ways that, that you did with this, where you had your own experience with the sun and then you proved it out with the tools of science. Are we at that point now where we can now, you know, sort of abandon the religion of science and, and just use it purely as a tool or, or a language set to explain our own authentic experiences? Well, quite a few scientists, you know, from including Einstein, you know, have their theories and insights, and then they work on the proof to actually say, well, okay, how can I you know, prove that this is the case? Um it's just that when they stray into spirit and consciousness, they don't go any further, because if they do, they lose their funding, they lose their jobs, they lose their reputations. And like anybody else, that's, you know, they don't want to go to those places. And there are, there are a few examples of scientists whose careers have been destroyed because they stumbled across something that was a taboo area, such as homeopathy. I mean, it's, homeopathy is almost universally ridiculed by scientists. I'm not saying I'm a great kind of supporter or know a lot about it, but I, but I do know it's a, um, it heals a lot of people. And I know in America, in the 19th century, homeopaths got paid more than doctors. Mm-hmm. But uh, a couple of scientists have stumbled across evidence that homeopathy has something going for it. And their careers have been destroyed, even though they didn't set out to do it. So it's, you know, I, I do really hope that scientists will get over this taboo and well, study. I wonder, you know, where, so where, where does this perception come from then, then? I mean, it's not just me. I hear it all over the place that, that it seems, I mean, is it cultural that, that it seems that science is really out to just prove a mechanical universe? I mean, I hear this from even, um, you know, my friend Teokas and Ghost Horse, uh, who is Lakota. And, you know, he is, lives in a state of, I think, rolling his eyes at um, Western science catching up with indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what is that, where does that perception come from if they truly are trying to prove out their, you know, their own experiences? Um, is it, is it a cultural racism that, that, that I'm feeling, uh, you know, where, where it's like the only, their experience is the thing that's worth proving out or, 
I, I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to wrap my head around where this uh, sense of scientific prejudice or science as a religion comes from. If that's not in fact what they're they're treating it as, how 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 is it that I come to this in thinking um, about science? Science is a you know closed mind religion. You you mean? Well, is that what it is? I mean, where where does it, it sounds just, like like I'm saying? Okay, there's the scientific arrogance, um, but what you're saying is that um, while that that may be true, they are in fact trying to sort of use science in the way that you and I would like to have them use it. I mean, you, you just said you know Einstein. That's that's how Einstein uh, came to his theories. Um, so why what is the discrepancy between what they're doing and and how we actually feel about what they're doing? You find you occasionally find essays, things written by by Einstein or or Baum or various scientists that that stray into the spiritual area, and they're kind of interesting, but they're never recognized or published in scientific journals. I mean, Isaac Newton spent much more time, as we know, studying the spirit of matter because he was an alchemist. Than he did writing the Principia Mathematica. Well, the Principia Mathematica is one of the most important scientific documents of all time, but none of his writings and work on alchemy are recognized or taken seriously because that became, about that time, one of the banned fields. And, you know, as I say in my book, it's very possibly the time he spent studying the spirit of matter that enabled him to work out the laws governing its motion. Um, but it is, it's very hard to overcome long-term prejudices and headsets. I mean, we have one in Western culture, just a sort of completely different, different analogy with, with sex, where we, and I include myself in this, you know, I'm well aware of my own, you know, uncomfortable feelings about sexuality. Nobody would have sex in public. I wouldn't want, you know, if I had a daughter, I wouldn't feel comfortable about her staying at a friend's house where they had pictures of people copulating on the living room wall. And yet, this used to be quite normal, you know. I mean, sex is the most natural thing in the world. It keeps our species alive. You know, we wouldn't be here without it. We don't worry about dogs, dogs screwing in public, you know. And, there's, and yet, there's this all this sort of stuff around it, and you know how you break through that, how you get over that. That's somebody else's job, and I hope somebody does it someday. <laughs> um, but we have that headset, and scientists have that head, same, you know, an equally inexplicable and you know headset about spirituality or anything, including including spirit or religion, and and that was very much imposed upon them hundreds of years ago, and it's, you know, to the point where people were burned at the stake or put in prison or thrown out of universities because the church ran all the schools and universities for many centuries. Um, and it's just been so kind of drummed into them that you don't go in this area that they, that they, they can't. They really find it difficult, and occasionally some do, but they never get published or they never, you know, get anywhere with it when they do because their peer group condemns them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that was the other sort of just interesting thing that you pointed out that, that I hadn't really thought much about, which is how science is still to this day influenced by 
religion, you know, in terms of what it's going to say publicly and not. I mean, I, I just it's one of those things that I, I don't really think about. And when when you're talking about, um, you know, they won't go there with spirituality. But when you get back to, say, indigenous beliefs on uh, or even, you know, the type of beliefs that you're talking about, about um, perhaps everything being intelligent. Mm-hmm. Well, that is something that they'll address. You know, so it's it's like they won't they will specifically not address Muslim Christian Judaism mm-hmm. uh, doctrine. <laughs> yeah. But when it comes to you know people who live in nature or come from that background, well, that's the stuff we'll do away with. You know, that's the stuff that we'll address. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess maybe that's where I, I I think this sort of there is this cultural prejudice in how they present things and what they will and won't say. Uh, and that, again, I guess you're saying, and, and I agree, stems, goes back to church oppression. Yeah, and, and, and then it's sort of, it's kind of reinforced now because all, the, all they look at, you know, even when, when you talk religion for most people in the West, all they think about is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which is a very sort of, even though it covers most of the world, and you know, the largest religions, and you know, if you add all the numbers together, that's biggest religions in the world. They're peas in a pod. They're all three very similar religions, and um, and they represent one viewpoint. But when it, when a scientist looks at that, of course, he thinks, what a load of you know, especially if you're looking at the Old Testament, it's what a load of you know, insanity. Mm-hmm. How can you possibly um, engage with this and they don't sort of see any other size to religion because that's that's the dominant one and if if they did study other aspects of spirituality and perhaps some are doing it these days they would um find something to get their teeth into properly Mm -hmm. so where do you see science going from here if if it does sort of um start to embrace uh, the type of thinking that you're employing in Son of God, uh-huh. uh, what do you think the future holds when it branches out that way and starts, uh, well, looking at spirituality or looking at, if you want to put a more neutral word on it, con- the consciousness of everything? Uh-huh. Um, what, well, how do you think that affects technology? I think, it, I think it's happening already. Not, you know, we don't we don't hear a lot about it. Um, but of course, as the East is rising as a power structure in the world, you know, China and Korea and Japan, and you know, the world is not strictly Western Europe and the USA anymore. You're getting scientists who aren't subject to the same prejudice as Western scientists, and yet they have received the same training and they've got similar equipment. And I know. Um, a friend of mine spent a bit of time in Korea at monasteries there and knows quite a few of the monks. And they, they'll, buy, they'll, they'll go out and buy pillows or mats that they might sit on to meditate and spend hundreds of dollars on these mats because they're woven with different types of metals. And uh, they may be plugged into the wall to have a current to sort of create certain esoteric conditions or states of mind. And you, you have got some the machinery on the on the edge, if you like, that is tapping into these areas. And I, I think as more scientists in the East and perhaps scientists in the West get into this, we'll find more subtle ways of treating states of mind and depression and disease 
um, we might find better ways of transporting ourselves about without the use of fossil fuels. Um, we still don't know how the Egyptians built the pyramids. You know, there might have been special techniques that they used using energies that we're not familiar with. We just assume it was hundreds of thousands of slaves and hard work because we don't know any other way other than oil and the technology we've got. You know, there was an awful lot of knowledge built up over centuries of the ancient world that was destroyed when the Library of Alexandria was burned down, when the mystery schools were destroyed and all their documents burned by the you know, the new Christian religion that saw that as pagan and, and had to be, you know, pagan was rubbish, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we have a lot to relearn and a lot of new stuff to discover. I mean, computers are pretty spectacular. I mean, God knows how these things work, but they all work according to, a lot of them work according to quantum physics. And any quantum physicist will tell you that anybody who purports to understand quantum physics doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. It's a very mysterious world of atoms and subatomic particles moving about, and it's just bizarre how they can be in two places at once and communicate with each other, but just accepting that's going on and working with it enables us to build incredible things that, like, you know, iPods that carry, you know, tens of thousands of things on them. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Are, are they, this is what uh, I, I'm not certain about, about non-locality. Are, are they sure that, that two, that these things can be in two places at once, or is it more like, um, well, for instance, if, if all of the stars, uh, if their light has already traveled everywhere, um, then is it possible that, that something along the lines of the information of the particle is instantaneously transported to another location or instant, instantaneously shows up um, sort of as a twin of itself based on the information uh, that it's riding on, on light? I don't know if what I just said makes sense, but something along those lines where, where it's not actually, where it's a twin of itself and not actually in two places at once sort of instantaneously creates a twin of itself uh, based on information exchange with light. Well, if I thought I could explain that to you, I'd be one of those people who the quantum physicists say don't know anything about quantum physics because they think they understand it. <laughs> I, I uh, All I know is that you know the iPhone and all the different bits and pieces they create work. Right. And they're using these principles. But nobody can actually figure out, I mean, right down to the quantum leap, you know, which is the electron moving from one ring of the orbit to another without traveling the space between. It just dematerializes and rematerializes mm-hmm. in another place. And how do you explain that? It's it's matter of some sort, and yet it just does that. Yeah, how do you explain that? And then uh, in terms of the, the, the fact that other things travel. I mean, some things do have to travel through time, and some things are instantaneous. How does that... Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, put those together? it's just the world of energy is so far removed. Even, even though we are beings of energy, and that's what keeps us alive, the actual nature of energy is so far removed from the kind of physical day-to-day world we live with liquid, solid, and gas, and no plasma, 
that it's it's beyond their understanding. Mm-hmm. And um, that's all right. <laughs> to your way of thinking, are computers already conscious? Um, I, I I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Really, are computers conscious? Um, is the stuff going around in them conscious, or is it a manifestation of what we're doing? I mean, I guess if I see if I see paper clips, I mean everything shares in consciousness, and how that's directed within a computer. I mean, it's obviously not independent consciousness. I can't answer that question. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. You you talked about paper clips where you you don't even have to. Uh press on them hard to get them to link up. Right. right they just right. sort of naturally do that. I, I, I like that a little bit. And, and it got me thinking about dust bunnies, actually. <laughs> about dust bunnies? Yeah. What's a dust bunny? Um, just little bits of hair and dust that collect in the corners of rooms. Right, right, right. You know, how does that happen? It's just, they just, but it always seems to. Just things seem to attract each other. It's, it's strange. I know. Um, so is, what, what's next on your plate? Do you, do you have another book in you? Um... Well, the other book is probably my my first book on common sense. The state is out of date. Is now more appropriate than than it was when I published when it was published in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, really showing people what the power and benefits are of freedom, and and showing that how all the things that we love and treasure and value in this world are things that we created. I mean, the government didn't create or doesn't manage music. It never it never told the Wright brothers to build the first airplane, and when they did, it never foresaw, it never said, okay, well, in 80 years' time, we're going to be able to fly from New York to London in five hours. And and and, and, and it just sort of shows how, how much we produce as a society without that external control. And then it looks at the things that the state has run because they're thought to be too important for us to run. And you get things like the health service. I mean, England, we've got more examples because the government used to run the airlines and the trains and still runs the health service. And you you get all these sort of failing institutions that rely on the, on the problem they're supposed to cure to survive. And... Um, and it was a real, a real effort to show us don't expect the government to solve global warming or homelessness or employment because the more we rely on them to solve those things, the more money they take out of our pockets to, to create solutions. And the more money they take out of our pockets, the more problems we have because, you know, we go out and we, we, we work day in, day out to make money, and half of that goes half or more now it goes to the government and to be spent on various programs, whether it's wars in Iraq or, or Social Security. It's taken out of our pockets in the first place, and that's why we have so much homelessness and unemployment and problems in our life. Um, and that was, it was a very, very um, important book. It changed a lot of people's lives. And post-9-11, it's, it's even more clear to many people that therein lies the problem, and herein lies the solution. So will you be re-releasing it? I would like to, yeah, once once Son of God has um, has had it, its day in court, so to speak, then that would be my next book to, to 
upgrade that a little bit and re-release it. Well, that's great. Uh, yeah, and I so I, again, I just I want to thank you for writing this and for coming on the show, and um, just to say that the overall thing that this impressed upon me um, is that our technological and our blinders on climb, uh, while not worthless by any stretch, I mean, everybody likes sewage and homes and, uh, you know, warmth in the winter and things like that. Um, but that when you put on those blinders it's and do that as a society, it's not creating more freedom. It's actually it's actually creating less, and that the way you create more freedom is to open up and to be more sensitive to the world around you and not try to explain it away in terms uh, where you're the master and it's just the thing you're studying uh, yeah. or the thing that you're dominating. Uh, that's actually not freedom. That's actually a clenched fist. And I yeah. thank you for unclenching my fist. Um, is, 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 is there a website that uh, you would like people to go to? Yeah, www.gregorysams.com. That's S-A-M-S. Com, and that's my website. It's got my first book on it in its entirety. It has a link to the Son of God website. It's got some other interesting pieces, and it's got a fantastic fractal gallery of all the sort of fractal images I used to generate in the early 90s. Huh, yeah, and you used to be friends with uh, John and Yoko. Yeah, I knew John and Yoko quite, quite well. They used to come down to my restaurant. I visited their house, and fed them in hospital, things like that. Yeah, John was a great supporter of my early ventures. What do you think John would have made of uh, 9-11 in the Bush years? Do you think he would have been um, right on board with the conspiracy theories, or, or what do you think he would have made of this time we just came out of, or are still in? I think he'd have been as, as horrified and disturbed by it as, as most of us are, of seeing this sort of seeing our freedoms taken away from us and seeing an artificial war on terrorism being foisted upon us um, and just seeing the sort of the military-industrial complex grow and grow and grow. It's, uh, it's a sad state of affairs, and I think it's, it's leading to the, ultimately, it's leading to the end of the American dream, which is a shame because it was a good dream. I, I know it's completely off topic. I'm just wondering because I, I just, you know, when the wars started breaking out and I realized there's, you know, there's no musicians, there's no artists that are speaking out against this. I mean, they sort of did after the fact, but where were they? And I just wondered, you know, Jesus, if Lennon were alive, would he have let this go un, unspoken? Would Frank Zappa have let this go without saying yeah. anything? I, well, you know, give peace a chance and war is over. John Lennon was, you know, he was definitely on on the board on board on that and uh yeah i don't know who is today um, <laughs> green day <laughs> <laughs> it just ain't the same <laughs> it's not quite the same but uh, it never is yeah well uh once again thank you sir for coming on the show and uh, it's been journey. a pleasure it's been a pleasure for me too Take care. okay thank you yep. Bye. Uh, this is colin andrews and you're listening to paratopia so, Paratopia, you may have noticed that uh, something was missing from this week's episode. It's, um, well, I'll just say it in case you're uh, completely stupid. It, it was Jeff. Jeff, are you there? I am here, yeah. Jeff, are you alive? I am alive, yeah. Jeff has been out of commission. He's been incredibly ill. And yes. I, if I seemed preoccupied during the podcast, I don't know if I did or not. 
uh, it was because I thought that Jeff might actually be dead or dying. <laughs> because not I, only was he I not was. responding to me, but his wife as well was not responding to me. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> that ain't good. Yeah. But yeah. you didn't get into a car wreck or anything. It just was your uh, throat closed up and you almost died, but you're fine. Uh, yeah, well, I... Uh... I did a really dumb thing. My my boss uh, gave us our bonus checks at work, and I went to the bank and cashed mine, sat at my desk counting out the bills into my wallet. And uh, <laughs> I said to myself at the time, hey, don't forget to Purell when you get done before you eat lunch. Don't forget. Mm-hmm. And I got up, and I went uh, into the kitchen, and I got a bag of potato chips, and I came back, sat down at my desk, and I said, hmm, that, that peanut butter dandy cake on the desk looks pretty good. And I went to pick it up, and it was a little warm, and the chocolate stuck to my thumb. Uh, and what does everyone do when they get chocolate on their thumb? Pick their nose? You lick it. Oh, right. And as soon as I did, as soon as my thumb hit my tongue, I knew I'd done something incredibly wrong. <laughs> And and believe it or not, a day later, my throat was scratchy, <coughs> and uh, excuse me, and uh, and I got laryngitis. I, ha- I had no voice for a while, and then uh, I thought it was getting better, and then it got worse. Mm. Then it gravitated to a tracheal infection and bronchitis. So, um, I thought I, I thought I was going to have to go to the hospital. I, I really did. I mean, that's the first time I've been that sick. Um, very long time. So, well, there's your I've there's been, your rule of thumb, kids. Don't play with money and lick your lick your fingers yes, afterwards. The rule of thumb is do not lick your thumb. Uh, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm glad you're you're still Thanks. on this earth with us. Thanks. Me too. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. <laughs> Same to you. Um, but I, I so as any sensitive co-host would do, I went on with the show thinking he's dead, got a responsibility to the fans. Right. <laughs> forget that he's dead. Just put it out of your mind. Just forget that your best friend and co-host is no more. <laughs> Just put that out of right. your mind and go on with the show. That That's what the people would I, want. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I, that. That's funny. I didn't think you would, but but you do. And that's great. And uh, <laughs> no, who, but, who pays the... Who would pay the bill? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're going to squeeze in one more show before they shut the, sh- the whole outfit down. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, so I, I sent you the show, and uh, you listened to it, presumably. Yes. What are your yes, thoughts? Yes, it is. It's, it's very interesting stuff. I, I, to be honest with you, when you first mentioned it to me, I was a little hesitant about it. <laughs> right. Just by the way it sounded. It sounded a little bit off to me Ooh. and uh, uh a lot woo and um <laughs> <laughs> and um but but hey i know that one of the parts of the show is trying to get over the hump of of uh, certain technicalities and certain vocabulary issues uh as attributed to the woo <laughs> um and trying to see if there is anything deep down in that wooness now we know in most cases there isn't but I, I think in this one, it's 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 a very interesting premise that he talks about. Uh, I, again, whether any any of it really makes any sense as far as my hardcore reality goes, I don't I don't know. 
Um, I got to tell you, the book is not at all woo. No, I, I, and he is not at all woo at all. And in uh, fact, the book is a lot wittier than I think comes across in the interview. Just for anyone, he's actually he's actually very he's very amusing guy. Yeah, he. Uh, it, I mean, it's uh, I mean, he's he's very funny, and he's he's just constantly. He'd said sorry. during the interview that he has this one chapter on religion, and and that you know the the rabbi who had reviewed it on Amazon had a problem with that, but really he takes jabs at religion and, and scientific arrogance right. throughout the book. So I don't know who, who he's yeah. trying to fool by saying there's just one chapter. It's sort of a tone that's in there. And I, I really appreciate it. I mean, I thought it was sort of a, an unapologetic book about sweetness in a sense, you know, book about the interconnectedness or interconnectivity of all things through his, you know, as established by his scientific reading, you know, I think one of the first things that that came to mind for me when I was listening to him talk um, about that interconnectivity of all things, and it, it just immediately sprang to mind for me <clears throat> the whole notion of the uh, Amazonian shaman, you know, trying to make the ayahuasca. And when you ask, you know, how did these very primitive people, out of millions of species of plants, populating their area know how to mix just the right uh, you know thing with the vine of souls to get that <clears throat> what is it a maoi inhibitor mm-hmm. uh to work and their answer is the plants told us uh, and that's actually not the only instance of that terence mckenna talked a lot about I, I wish i could remember the guy's name but i'm a little woozy from the codeine and uh <laughs> And antibiotics, but uh, he mentioned a, a man who went down to the Amazon in the in the late fifties or early sixties and was in an ayahuasca state and 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 asked the ayahuasca, you know, can you show me other plants that are psychedelic? And this plant kept reoccurring in his mind, and when he found this plant, uh, it, it had psychedelic properties. So I, I found all that very interesting that that the, the these inanimate uh, what we think of as inanimate objects or inanimate plants uh you know that that seem to communicate with us in certain states telling us about other it's not like you go out and eat a dandelion and the dandelion goes hey you know that tree over there (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. that doesn't that's not part of our everyday thought but uh uh i mean clearly in, in some cases uh the stuff is is more animate than we think it is and I thought that was really interesting, especially when it came to the the, the cosmos, uh, the cosmology that he was talking about, <coughs> um, was was very interesting stuff, and, and stuff that I had thought about uh, before. In the sense, uh, I guess, in the broader sense of uh, what you mentioned in the interview, which was everything having this sort of consciousness about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is is uh, I don't know somehow oddly familiar to me, and I can't figure out exactly why. Yeah, why uh, why would why would electrons in a plasma soup self organize and start to work logically? Why would anything? Why would a galaxy? Why would a solar system? You know any of that stuff? And and of course that yeah. gets right back to the the good old Egyptian as above so below. Uh, which, of course, is another way, you know, in scientific terms, is the holographic universe, where everything is, it's a nesting doll system, where everything is a system within a system within a system. So it's kind of like, if you figure out one thing, you figured out everything. <laughs> well, we just can't figure out yeah. the one thing. Is the problem. Exactly, yeah. We're at square one. Um, 
uh, I'm curious in his book, did he go into, you know, what he you know, referred to as the, 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 the religions of Abraham that, <clears throat> that even the similarities in the types of numbers in the terms of the Zodiac, the 12 disciples, um, you know, all of those kinds of things that he, did he talk about any anything relating to that? Any any like hardcore correlation of numbers of planets versus you know um, similarities to religions that aren't necessarily sun based religions, but more the Abrahamic religions of uh, that sort of thing? Did he draw any of those lines at all? No, it wasn't so much about that aspect of stuff. You mean like codes? <laughs> Well, like like, specific numbers are important, that sort of thing. Well, like, you know, we're talking about, uh, like, you've got the world's crucified God men, you know, have their traditional birthday on the December 25th. And that that was that uh, the the winter solstice stuff and and, uh, the, the, the notion of the sun making an annual descent southward until December 21st or 22nd and the winter solstice when it stops moving southerly and, you know, and all of that correlating to you know abrahamic religions and and all you know that there's kind of correlations no, of correlations some patients, you know with abrahamic religions yeah yeah i mean well the correlations were um it wasn't great detail but it was enough to say that basically uh yeah that the the the, the judeo christian muslim stuff you know gets its basis in zoroastrianism and <laughs> Right. You know, which was <laughs> sun worshiping. You know, it's basically you just take out the sun, you take out the word sun, and you, you're left with this invisible force that emits light, uh, and that's God. So it's, it's like they just they, they did a rap song about, you know, it's like they just did a, a complete remix <sighs> of old religion. I mean, so, you know, he has enough of that in there to make that point, but it's not – even that point isn't um, – a huge point in the, in the thing. I mean, it really is. It's one of those books where he's making point after point after point in all these different directions, uh, to make the case that everything is alive, you know? And really when he does talk about religion, it's, it's mainly to, to sort of dismantle our modern mainstream religions or to disarm them, you know, and to say that these were based on something else. And so why do they have a stranglehold on science when they don't even, make sense on their own terms and they're borrowing from other people, you know, it's just all of this. He's just sort of making the case that like that really the only reason we're not clear about how conscious and alive everything is, uh, within ourselves uh, and within our science is because of that. It's still that old taboo of, of, uh, tiptoeing into religious territory because the religions are the ones that persecuted the tiptoers and the scientists and all that. Sure. And right, it's true, right. and I never thought about that. But yeah, they're still playing by those rules. Why are they? Why would um, s- scientists have no problem tearing apart animism or tearing apart indigenous thought and, and calling that primitive and treating that like you're looking at a primitive society? But they won't go near organized religion. They'll say, "Well, that's not our. You know, we don't, <laughs> don't want to have that fight." Right. Really. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why would I mean, that be? I'm, well, that would be because those guys put you in the guillotine back in the day. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that that, I, and I, I had written down some things here, and I emailed myself about what I found interesting about the the, the notion of the sun 
and just, I mean, I, I based it around Christianity because that's what I know. But, you know, the sun being the light of the world, which is how they refer to Jesus Christ. The sun cometh on clouds and every eye shall see him, which is just exactly where the Jesus thing went. Uh, uh, the sun rising in the morning is the savior of mankind, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, the sun wears a corona or, or crown of thorns or a halo. There's your halo in, the, in your, your religious uh points uh the, the you know the sun walks on water mm-hmm. uh uh the sun can turn water rain into into wine just as jesus did wine the water you know makes the grapes it even got so deep as to say you know the sun enters into each sign of the zodiac at 30 degrees hence the sun s-u-n of god begins ministry at age quote-unquote age 30 just as Jesus did. I mean, it really gets re- retarded after a while. To the, to well, you the you could also say, tank. you know, Jesus uh, was associated <coughs> with Venus, you know, which is the bright star right. in the sky next to the sun, which would be the father, you know. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of interesting stuff like that. What I found really interesting is the way he had framed light and energy as information. And so the sun sends its information to earth and all of life is born from it. So there's that connectivity, you know, that very direct thing of we are, you know, if you want to say beings of light, okay. But uh, if you want to say something less, <laughs> feel free, right. but, but it's true. You know, it, it just is what it is that, that the sun, that there's some sort of information exchange that has to happen for life to occur between yeah. sunlight and inanimate objects or seemingly yeah. inanimate objects. And then he goes into classifications of inanimate objects and animate objects and, and all of that. And you start to see that even inanimate objects aren't so inanimate after all, you know, because at the subatomic level, of course, they got stuff going on. And, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it just, um, it's just, I it's don't know. It's just deep what, thinking. I it, mean. <laughs> it's deep, it's deep thinking, but it's also, there's just something endearing about it. Like there's something about it where you just give in and you go, you know, this is kind of a sweet argument. This is kind of, like, I can at least appreciate it on that level, if nothing else, and I can appreciate it on a lot of levels, but I think, like, that one just breaks through immediately, almost almost like a good kid's movie, you know? It's like, it, it breaks <laughs> right. down your tough, stupid adult exterior, and then you go, yeah, <laughs> we are all, really, you know, it is all <laughs> of a pattern. <laughs> yeah, well, <coughs> I, for one, would like to see the sun uh, again very soon, because... Uh, haven't had much of it lately. I'm, I'm curious uh, if you could, uh, I don't know, explain a little bit more. I heard him mention something about the notion of the sun sending out its light and its light, everything that it touches, it becomes aware of. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, because it's light, it, it is traveling at the speed of light. It becomes aware of everything at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I, 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 I'm I'm having a hard time getting my head around exactly what that means because, you know, it certainly can't be aware of light that it hasn't uh, uh, reached yet. You know, I'm sure that there's light that our sun has not reached. There's places our sunlight, our sun, our star has not reached yet. So could it truly be aware of everything? Yeah, you're asking the wrong guy. I mean, I, 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 I have a hard time wrapping my head around that unless you were to say, the very simple, there's locality and non-locality and light is, is non-local. And so it can be everywhere at once. And so it knows everything at once. Um, but I don't know that that's what he was saying. I mean, I mean, he was saying that from our point of view, I mean, but I never got it when Einstein said it, you know, 
<laughs> yeah. 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 It's eight uh, minutes to us, but to them, we've become 85 <laughs> years old. Right. Yeah. Come back from space. I mean, I, you know, but huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. No, it was an interesting show. And I mean, it's one that I'm going to have to listen to a lot. I'm sure to fully appreciate it. And you're sending me the book. So I'll, I'll read that or you're bringing it down when you come down. But, uh, I'll definitely read it. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of what he said, uh, was, was interesting stuff. Now, whether or not I buy any of it is another matter altogether, but certainly it was interesting. Uh, I don't think there's anything to buy. You know what I mean? Like there, there's, it's just something that you just see. It's like you read it and you go, yeah, I mean, it's only, I, I it's only, giving, it's says, only, it's only know, giving science to the things that we already suspect, you know? <laughs> Cricket. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know about, I don't, I don't know. I mean, when we talk about, consciousness in 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 everything in every object i i i i can't explain why that that has a a ring of familiarity to me i I honestly can't but i think that he made it very clear that we're not talking about consciousness and that my guitar sitting over there on the floor right now is thinking is he gonna pick me up and play with me tonight (laughs) i just gonna sit here another night listening to him cough in the distance um you know, I, we're not talking about that sort of thing in right. this this in this framework, and that that was immediately when you when you spoke to me about having this man come on and and and, and talking about this book, I was like, oh my god, Jeff, would you I know? let you down in that way? Come on, <laughs> no, no, of course. <laughs> but I like one day our son, our son is going to yawn, and we're all going to die. You know, it's going to give us oh. two scoops of reasons. Yeah, no, <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, but it could. Believe me, if everybody, if I, yeah. um, but uh, yeah, I, I found it. I found it really interesting. I, 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 I do have to preface this by saying I have to listen to it again. I, I'm on a lot of medication right now. <laughs> I'm not lying. I am so out of it that it's ridiculous. Well, it's but. also interesting just to remember, you know. <coughs> Because I think when people who do believe that everything is interconnected and all that, people who get that, I think, tend to forget that um, that we're still at the tail end of a phase of development where we, at least in the West, don't get that. You know, and so when he talks about, you know, it, and it's just a footnote. It's just a footnote in the back of the book. Descartes nailing his dog to the door to prove to people that the yelping is mechanical. I mean, that is just that, bass backwards, you know? That really is insane to me. <laughs> you know, and then you think about that slavery wasn't so long ago and civil rights was right around uh-huh. the corner and, you know, suffrage and all that. You know, we're just coming out of this whole objectifying animals and people and the environment, which is our new, you know, dilemma now. It's like... Do are we really having this argument about whether or not we should care about the environment, whether or not the environment is alive and serves us life as well? You know, all right. of these like primitive arguments that that we civilized people enjoy having, we're still in the middle of. You know, and I think people forget that who are have in their heads moved beyond that. Yeah. Um, so it it just it's it's a nice reminder that we're still kind of screwed up. I don't know something that I watched. Um... While, while I was laying in the fart chair, dying. Uh, <laughs> Probably because of the fart chair. 
most likely. No, actually, the fart chair probably protected you from most flus and colds this year. Yeah, nothing lives there, <laughs> uh, <laughs> including me. Uh, <laughs> well played. <laughs> I think one of the things that had that had come on uh, television at one point was some something about about Hawking and his uh, one of his theories that he's now kind of figuring out is, is incorrect and uh, or that he may have been wrong about. And one of the last lines in this program was that the longer that we're around as a species, the more we realize we may, we may know a lot about the, the, the finest minutia of, of certain atom, atomic properties and, and, and the weirdness that may or may not surround them. But when it comes to, the bigger questions and the and the definitive uh, uh, <laughs> the bigger overarching all encompassing questions uh, the singularity questions the more we realize how little we actually know and how the the biggest theories that a lot of science that on which science is built uh, we're finding out are a lot more complicated than we ever dared to dream about mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I found that to be a I don't know, a little unsettling that, that science these days is even starting to take a kind of a, a turnaround and to, 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 to question itself, which I think is good. But it's a little unsettling to know that we it, – it's unsettling and, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's awesome at the same time to know that we really don't know as much as we thought we did. And now we're coming out of this grand illusion of thinking that we knew how everything was, was – being put together and how everything originated and how all this stuff happened. And, and now we're realizing uh, through science that, uh, you know, maybe we don't, maybe the more we delve, the more we realize we just don't know anything. <laughs> you know, I think that's great. I, I mean, I, I, I like that. I mean, I, I do like that in a certain sense. Well, what, you know, I hope we learn the lesson of that, which is that the thing that's steady in, in all of that is um, sort of the notion that, things are true from certain perspectives and some things are proven untrue totally out of hand, but some things I think are, are true from certain perspectives and always remain true to themselves in those perspectives. But you can see other perspectives that may even transcend those. And so, you know, in terms of even just spirituality, when people talk about everything being an illusion, but they don't realize that it's a necessary illusion when you talk about time being an illusion, uh, that that's also a necessary illusion. I mean, there are mechanical things that need to exist, that do exist. Let's put it that way. There are th- These mechanical things that do exist actually do exist, and there's no amount of wishing them away that makes them not so. But that, that's not to say that you can't change perspective uh, to something else that is, let's say, equally valid, even if it's a higher truth or a higher fact of how things are. It doesn't do away with the fact that's quote unquote below it. And I think, you know, maybe science is being forced to come around to that so that even, even though now we're, we're sort of tripped up on quantum physics and how great and freeing quantum physics is that that's not to say that Newtonian physics are condemnable now. It's just to say that they're, you know, they, they have to be recontextualized and, and uh, broader. Yeah, yeah, and their limit their limits need to be recognized. You know, you need to see where does one end and the other begin. Just because one ends and the other begins doesn't mean that the thing that ended is is no longer valid. You know, right, right. 
Well, so I, I find I, that fascinating. Just that notion. Just that yeah. that notion that that we can have this this giant reality that uh, everything looks completely obvious to us, and you just switch a little perspective, and suddenly things ain't so obvious. But that doesn't mean that that everything is. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't even mean that everything is malleable. It just means that perspectives are malleable. You know what I mean? I mean, I, right. I could be wrong about that. I'm just saying. It's just yeah, like, I, I get, I get where you're coming from. Right. We don't yeah. need to always just throw our hands up in the air and go, oh, my God, everything is not what, what it seems. It's like, well, for a while, and then just like the TV show Lost, for a while, everything will be in upheaval, and then it right. will take its rightful context. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and then most I learned, likely – from Lost. And then most likely it will change again. Uh, you know, the, the – um, I think the part in the show that I'm remembering now that that uh, that I thought was was uh, interesting and what gave me a thought was when he talked about. Uh, I guess he was making a similarity between us and planets and and stars and these kind of things that they they pair together. They um, uh, you probably remember better than I do right now in my codeine induced haste. They they pair together. They're they're together for. The lifetime of their, this, the, the the binary stars stay together for their lifetime, and and we tend to do these kinds of things. And there, there's this similar, almost almost uh, human like behavior. This was right before the point I think where you asked him about anthropomorphizing everything, um, it, you know, into a, a context of attributing a human behavior to what we would consider inanimate objects. <clears throat> Excuse me, and. I thought that that was an interesting thing that he was talking about and the, and the similarities that he made to our behavior, the behavior of stars, planets, so on, and that it almost seems fractal-based. You know, if you, if you look at us as being the lower end of the fractal set, you know, and as that set expands, it, we, we don't expand as the fractal, but the consciousness expands as a fractal, and the fractal then mimics its smaller parts and so on and so on and yeah, so on. Yeah, he gets into fractal geometry in there too, yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a uh, that was an interesting uh, thing. That that was another thing that I had written down here to to mention. But uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a very interesting show. Not at all what I expected it to be. So I, I thoroughly I thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. Actually, cool. Well, I wish you uh, I wish you'd been there. Me too. Uh, Bud. Anywhere where I was would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. Moving on. <laughs> yes, as we're prone to do, yeah. uh, and really, I guess, arguably, in the spirit of this show, although that's not how it came about, but it certainly fits well in this context. How do we want to approach this, Jeff? <laughs> how do we want to approach this? You mean as two of the most annoying personalities in ufology? How do we want to approach this? Is that what you're asking me? <laughs> that's oh, not wait. A good, that's not a good start, Jeff. That's I'm not sorry. a good start. All right. Well, it's no, it's no secret that we've had uh, how you say past run-ins with the Paracast, another podcast out there, um, and we have a lot of animosity with one of the hosts and a little animosity with another of the hosts. And lately, on their forums, some of their um, you know hardcore fans have been sort of taking pot shots at us, which is you know par for the course, I guess. Yeah. But. Um, we're going to throw all that aside. I want to read something to you. Um, this is from the Paracast newsletter, and I don't know when this was posted, but 
It was this week, right? This Paracast newsletter? Or yes. Last week? This week or, or late last. All right. Well, I'm going to read from it here. So this is Gene Steinberg, one of the co-hosts, and he talks about um, you know, his sister-in-law. He, he put in a lot of money helping his sister, his sister-in-law survive some legal troubles. So, you know, he's got a sob story about that and how it sort of ruined his jobs and some friendships and all of this. And then it says, uh, that takes us to my own situation. In recent months, my glorious wife, Barbara, who has stuck with me despite the setbacks for 33 years, had corneal transplant and cataract surgery in both her eyes. More recently, I've had a painful surgical procedure, and I still require extensive dental work, postponed for years simply because the costs are high and dental insurance just isn't available for small companies. I have most of my teeth, but eating is usually painful. Our health insurance carrier has fought the payments for the recent surgeries tooth and nail and tried twice to cancel our coverage. Even though they paid some of the bills, we have thousands and thousands of dollars in co-pays and deductibles left, which has utterly devastated our finances. Unfortunately, we don't have a large family. In addition to my wife's sister, few remain. There are no siblings, parents, aunts, or uncles. My grandson, Grayson, reached out to other family members last summer in order to prepare a family tree with limited success. Our circle of close friends is small, and other sources of funding, such as bank loans, government assistance, and so on and so forth, are just not available in any decent amount. I've been creative in, in raising cash. Recently, I sold my Mac Pro and 30-inch display, replacing it with a 27-inch iMac. Uh, since payments on the new computer are not due to start for six months, I was able to use the proceeds to cover more immediate needs. So I am returning once again to my extended family, you readers and listeners, who have followed me loyally all these years in the hope that you can help provide donations and even loans to keep us afloat. Understand that our prospects for the future remain solid. This site has been active for a decade. Our tech radio show is in its eighth year, and the paranormal show concludes its fourth year in February of 2010. <laughs> if you have stayed with me so far and you're able to help, please consider a PayPal donation. So here now, I, you know, I, when another friend of mine brought this to my attention, and I was sort of skeptical of some stuff in it, but ultimately... Um, and Jeff, you were probably, you know, you're, you're more f fundamental in, in bringing me around to this, uh, because you were saying, yeah, well, that's all true, but I was considering donating anyway. Right. Yeah. And you're well, right. I mean, it's one of those, it doesn't yeah. matter what our animosity is in the end. This is a human being suffering. Yeah. Um, so if you have large chunks of money lying around and you want to give Gene Steinberg a loan, or perhaps you you know, can afford to donate whatever you can, you can do that at www.technightowl.com backslash forum backslash bills paypal dot php question mark. Do I need to say all of that? Yeah, say it one more time okay. slow. www.technightowl.com backslash forum backslash bills paypal.php question mark. So you can either go there or if it's easier for you, we'll do what Jeff, we'll put up a link on our website. We're gonna, yeah. We're going to put a link underneath the show posting for this week where you can click direct directly. I'll have a little, um, a little sidebar put there where you can donate to Gene directly. And I'll, I'll try and trace that link through and, and see where it's going and, and try to put a direct link up on our page. So, uh, all kidding aside, I mean, uh, 
it's like Jeremy said, you know, and when I saw this, I thought, you know, I, I should just send $20 or $30 or whatever I've got here that I can do right after Christmas. I know it's tough for everybody, but again, like Jeff said, uh, we're all people, we all have these kind of problems and it sounds like jeans up against the wall. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's worth helping another, another person out like that. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I really don't know what else to say about it, about it other than that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's not let's not leave any uh, illusions out there that uh, this is any sort of apologetic action of any sort. If that you know if that hangs true, no, and I don't know how we have to put that, but this is more along the lines of putting all that crap aside for a minute and yeah. and asking all of our listeners to help out as well um, as much as you can because it's uh, well you put your personal differences aside and and you have this. You help a human out, you know, it's an impersonal thing. Yeah. You don't yeah. see somebody suffer even if you're angry or you have some personal animosity or anything. I mean, yeah. Yeah. one doesn't matter next to the other. No one doesn't compare to the other. How about that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to look at it. So, so everybody give a hand if you can. I know it's tough after the holidays, but, uh, you, you helped us out with our show and, uh, and, and, and did a fantastic job. And, and again, we thank you for that. And as a side note, I'm not kidding, Jeremy, I must've got 30 emails. Uh, hope you're feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> and come that. back. So, Jeremy's ruining the forum. So, <laughs> right. So, uh, thank you everybody for those. That's very nice and very sweet. And I appreciate it. I'm sorry, um, I single-handedly ruined the forum while, while Jeff was chased, away. chased off everybody. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jeff. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, we'll have that link uh, underneath of this show posting, and uh, we'll follow that out and see if we can help Gino. Very nice. And meanwhile, since you've got all this money <laughs> to burn, why not do yourself a favor and go get Gregory Sam's Son of God book? Because it um, is a refreshing and informative read. And one more thing, one last thing before we go. Um, so our next episode is the 50th, and we uh, have asked a couple of people to be members of a uh, listener panel discussion, but we, we would like to have um, more members. And so if you'd like to be part of the panel discussion, uh, that will be what our 50th episode is. So send us... You will need to submit... A full essay of no less than 250 words. Oh, don't do that. They'll still send that. Don't do that. <laughs> you, don't, you already know exactly who, who's going to Prove send your that. worthiness to the gods of Paratopia. No, no. just uh, whoever the first people are to email Jeff or I and say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Um, with a coherent statement. With a key, yeah. Want <laughs> I to the... Um, why come you don't let me on your show <laughs> through the forum um where it's got to be obviously before tuesday we're going to record this thing tuesday at 8 p.m is that correct? That's correct eastern standard time that would be this coming tuesday that would be the wait for it wait for it the 12th all right, right. so if we hear from you before then it's sort of first come first serve and uh, what, are we, what are we looking for? How many people are we looking for here? You know, what, what, what are we thinking here? Um, I wouldn't mind having four. Yeah. What do you say? Six people? That's a round table. Four, five, six. Well, we've already got two, so let's say another four. Okay, good. 
And so if you want to come on the show and you want to talk about whatever you want, it's like everybody just bring a couple of questions that you either want to ask Jeff and I or you want to just throw out there to the panel. Um, that's how we're going to do it. So this is our 50th episode. It is a show for you, by you, featuring us. It should be good times. Who do we have so far? Whitley Strieber. Excellent. Just kidding. Uh, uh, sorry, everybody. Uh, no. Um, yeah, no. Uh, who said yes? Let's see. Um, I only sent it out to three people, and they were uh, two of the originals and uh, who live in America. I, I just I figured anyone who's in Australia probably, you know, or England won't be up. But uh, if you are, great, then send us an email. Um, so it's Seven String and Bunny Girl. Uh, I sent an email to Roscoe, but I don't think he saw it. Because I don't think he checks his private messages. So, uh, <laughs> uh, well, Roscoe, but, if you're listening, please get on the damn stick. Let's go. Yeah, and bunny girls so that it's not just a bunch of guys. Right. <laughs> Jeff, is that your phone? You want to answer that? Yeah, well, that's our that's our new international line ringing. Oh, really? It's, we have an international line? Yes, it's China. Oh, my God, Let's, China. Answer, let's get this man on the horn. Hi. Hi, Wang. Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, hello. So, so, yeah, back. I'm 42. How old are you, Jeremy? I am 36. Uh, 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 there are two men talking at the same time. That's correct, yeah. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm 19 and uh, I am from China. Ah, China. Ah, well, I'm, yes. in, uh, I'm in uh, Maryland in the USA and, and Jeremy is in New, New York, York City. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, right now you're live uh, on the you're live on the Paratopia radio show. By the way, what 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 did you say? I said you're I'm live. Sorry. You're 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 live on the Paratopia radio show. Radio show? What's that? Uh, radio show uh, broadcast. How's that? Oh, uh, uh, I think I, I cannot understand you. I'm sorry. So there are some words I I cannot understand. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's let's forget it. Okay. Great. The number you have. Well, obviously, big things going on in China tonight. Big trouble in Little China. <laughs> forget it. <laughs> We've been shunned by the Chinese. Well, what are you gonna do? Damn it, Wang. Good to hear from you, <laughs> I China. So many, I had so many questions for Wang. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> Not about Wang, mind you, but for Wang. Wang, you're lucky to have made it off the air alive. <laughs> so, Paracast, you may have um, noticed... Paracast. Jesus. Let's try that again. Three, two, one. <laughs> so, Paratopia. <laughs> I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> so, Paratopia, you may have... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Uh, you may have noticed two things. All right. 